Hello and welcome to episode uh, 18? Thanks so. Uh, okay, of Batman Nightcast, a podcast chronicling the comic book adventures of the Dark Knight detective in the era after Crisis on Infinite Earths. I'm Ryan Daly. And I'm Chris Franklin. And we are back after an extended and totally planned hiatus. Uh, to talk about Batman issue 409, which continues the much-beloved run by writer Max Allen Collins, introducing us to the new post-crisis version of Jason Todd. Yeah, you know we're going to have a lot to say on this particular subject, but before we talk about the issue, hey Chris, what's up? Oh, uh, <laughs> just the usual, uh, but you know, it's 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 been like five months, I think, <laughs> yeah. so... There's been a lot that's gone on in Batman's world. I, I th- I'm pretty sure that he's he's getting married this summer, or he's going to try to get married this summer. So that's big, you know. I'm sure uh, every wedding episode of television it will go off without a hitch. I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, as we were just mentioning, like since the last time we did one of these episodes, Batman has appeared in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that that should be big news. Yeah, not, it unfortunately wasn't as big a news as. As I think Warner Brothers hoped it would be. But <laughs> no, no. I, yeah. What did you think of Justice League? Uh, you know, I I enjoyed it. I have not bought it on DVD or Blu-ray yet. It's just been one of those things I just haven't. There's been too many movies hitting like around the same time, and I'm like, I'm I'm cheap, so I've been like, ah, I'll I'll get that Thor Ragnarok and, and Last Jedi eventually. But um, I enjoyed it. It's um, it is flawed. It is. Uh, rushed. It feels rushed. There's moments in there that I will agree that that the DC Cinematic Universe did not, or whatever DC Extended Universe, whatever they call it, didn't earn. But it was the course correction I wanted to see for it, and there were a lot of legitimately uh, fist pumping, you know, comic geeky fist pumping moments in it uh, that I really, really enjoyed. I liked it overall, despite its flaws and the the scissors cuts showing and the glue showing where it was pasted together. Uh, I had a good time. I went and saw it twice. So, you know, mm. I I liked it. I think everybody uh, in our particular circle who I think saw it said kind of the same thing. Um, people I trust say they had a good time. They really enjoyed it. I haven't seen it yet. And YouTube now has a bunch of clips of the movie, like long, like six or seven minute clips, like almost like the entire climax, I think, is on, on like the whole last battle with Steppenwolf is on YouTube. You can watch a bunch of it. And when I was just sitting there, I was like, okay, let me give this a shot, because they had, like, a clip of the prologue, which is, like, the first five minutes of the movie. And I was like, all right, let me see what this is. And I started watching it, and it just, it opened with just the, you know, smartphone footage of Superman. And I think I I got about ten seconds into it, and I turned it off, uh, (laughs) because I, I saw Superman's face. And I had seen pictures of, like, what it looked like with the digitally removed mustache and stuff like that, and... And there was just some difference between seeing a picture of it and actually watching it in the movie in context. And I think I coughed, or like half laughed, half coughed, and just said no. And it, <laughs> it just seemed so unprofessional, so like, like I was like offended that Warner Brothers would have asked for my move, my money to see this movie that's, that's obviously not done. I was like, that, that is not the best you can do. So I, I yeah I just I, like I I have no idea how Batman or any of the other characters fare in the movie because I only watched ten seconds of it and said like if I had been in the theater I would have walked out then and demanded my money back. Um, 
But I, yeah, I don't know. But everybody I know who talked to, they're like, yeah, it's a really problematic movie, but it's fun. So maybe that might be one where I do like at a drinking game party or something like that, where I, I force myself to get through it. <laughs> at the next, uh, at the next fire and water get together, we'll just all be in a room. We'll lock the doors and we're like, okay, Ryan, you're watching Justice League, and we'll just hold you down. It'll be like a Clockwork Orange, oh, you God. know. <laughs> All right, you'll either have to like hold my eyelids open with metal tongs or lots of shots, whatever one. <laughs> so, uh, all right, moving on. Uh, once more, before we review Batman 409, which was cover dated July 1987, let us take a look at what other comics were on the shelves that month. From DC and relating to our subject, we had Detective Comics 576, that was the second part of Year 2, and which, unless something weird happens, that should be covered on our next episode of Batman Nightcast. And then after that, Batman Annual Number 11, which we should be covering two episodes hence. Um, we also got Secret Origins Number 16, which featured the origin of Our Man, Warlord, and Amazing Man, and that was topical because that month we also saw the release of Amazing Man Special. Chris, what else came out from DC that month? Uh, well, we got Doctor Fate number one. Uh, that uh, is the miniseries that Shag loves up and down, but I feel like it totally wrecked the character at the height of his popularity. But that's just me. Uh, because, I, you know what? Uh, <laughs> I, I think I'm more on your side of those things. Like I just I couldn't get into that. I, I read that series and I was like, ah, this does not. This is not the Doctor Fate story I wanted to hear or wanted to read. That's, you know, it, it, it's it's like they they the character like gained like a popularity that's like oh he's in the Justice League he's a superpowers figure, uh you know I mean he he's a superpowers figure and and you know everybody's like ooh, Doctor Fate Doctor Fate Doctor Fate and then they give us a miniseries and then they kill that Doctor Fate and give us <laughs> this little kid and a stepmom and. And then later on, they he grows to an adult, and they get romantically involved, which is just icky. I'm sorry, I don't, you know, it's like <laughs> Greg and Carol Brady or something, you know. Bah. Uh, yeah, Superpowers. Just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and I and I actually had a subscription to the uh, the ongoing series mm-hmm. uh, that followed this. I because you know, and I it, they had an ad for it. I subscribed to it. I got the poster. I enjoyed it on its own terms, but at the same time, I was like. I'd rather just had regular Doctor Fate, you yeah. know. So uh, there was also Action Comics number five ninety, which I think was the first time that it, it featured the Metal Men guest starring with Superman. I think that was the first time that we saw the Metal Men combined into one big like robot, kind of like you know Voltron or one of the combiners <laughs> doing from the Trans- Gestalt effect from the Transformers and Voltron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Captain Adam number five featured an appearance by Firestorm, so shout out to Shag for that one. Uh, we also got, I think, the fourth and final issue of Shazam! The New Beginning came out that month. Yeah, that, you know, that cover just proves that Tom Mandrake and Captain Marvel weren't really congealing there. I don't know, it's just it's just way too dark for, for Captain Marvel, in my opinion. I know some people, I bought that book when it came out, but I thought... I know they were trying to make Captain Marvel a little edgier, but it was a little too much, mm-hmm. you know. Who was it? Talk- I think I was talking to Greg Arujo about this. Um, there was a I can't think for the life of me the name of the artist who was doing the Captain Marvel strip on Action Comics Weekly. Oh, Rick Stassi. Rick Stassi, yeah. And I remember hearing something like like Greg was telling me that Roy Thomas did not like his art on that, that Captain Marvel strip, and Roy Thomas really liked Tom Mandrake, and I was like. 
really? For Captain Marvel? <laughs> like, really? So. Well, I, you know, I guess if you look at it, you can kind of see there's a little bit of a through line between – Especially like with the, the the lots of the shadow work they did between Don Newton, who was like the Captain Marvel mm-hmm. artist of the mm-hmm. of the earlier eighties, late seventies, early eighties, and then Tom Mandrake. But Don Newton had I don't know his his artwork was there was uh there was still I don't know a lightness to the to the to the human faces. There was a lot of uh, I don't know acting in the faces and stuff, and I think that kind of that kind of pulled it through and kind of made it work for Captain Marvel, where Mandrake's was more. Just like you know, more harsh lines, shadows. It just mm-hmm. it just didn't work. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else noteworthy from DC that month? Well, this month sees the infamous test covers of Fury of Firestorm number sixty one and Justice League number three, uh, which makes me think that somehow retroactively Shag had something to do with this. I don't know how, <laughs> but Shag went back in time and messed up. I think what happened is Shag went back in time, convinced DC to print these these test covers, and then he bought tons of them. And that's why not many of them exist, and he's been selling them at comic conventions over the years and making money. (laughs) (laughs) I think my theory holds up. I don't know. Yeah, it sounds right. Yeah. (laughs) Definitely had that that farsight, that forward thinking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I will say one, uh, skipping over to Marvel, Amazing Spider-Man number 290 has Peter Parker ask Mary Jane to marry him. Uh, and I was reading Spider-Man at the time. Uh, that came out of nowhere. I I, <laughs> I will I did not like what they did with Brand New Day and Erasing the Marriage and the whole deal with Mephisto thing. Mm-hmm. But their marriage was built on sand. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not like Superman and Lois. This was, yeah, this was... Uh, this was rushed into into production because the comic strip had organically had them get to the point of marriage, and the comic wanted to catch up and have corporate synergy. You know, yeah, so yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of Spider Man, Marvel Tales Spider Man two hundred and one came out that reprinted the Spider Man and Captain Britain story that Siskoid and Martin Gray just talked about recently on an episode of FW Team Up. Uh, we also got Ewoks issue 14, which was the last issue of the series. Oh, <laughs> better than last Jedi. No, I, I have no idea. But, uh, GI Joe issue 61 came out. This was the beginning of, I think a fan favorite saga that involves stalker snow job and quick kick being captured and taken to a gulag without back escaping and having to make his way back to the States. Uh, that ran across a couple of issues. That was a, a pretty good story of fan favorite. Uh, Silver Surfer issue one by Inglehart and Rogers. I've never yeah. read their run on Silver Surfer, and I didn't even realize they had a run on Silver Surfer. I need to, I need to find. Like, I, I saw that and I was like, "What?" I went right to the Marvel Unlimited app, and it doesn't have the early issues of the Silver Surfer series. It only has the later, like Ron Lim issues that are closer to the Infinity sagas. But yeah, I, did, I haven't read it either. I remember, I remember hearing that that you know Marshall Rogers was on Silver Surfer. I gotta say, as and I and I hate to say this because I love you know me I love I love Marshall Rogers. That's a weird cover. It's like Galactus is just like it's not like he's like looming like threatening. He's not threatening them, but he's just mm-hmm. kind of like it's almost like he's the big boy statue out in front of Frisch's or something. They just <laughs> went by and they're like, whoa, you know, or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's weird. It's weird. <laughs> 
Uh, and then the last thing of note, I think uh, the Wolverine trade paperback that collected the four-issue miniseries by Chris Claremont and Mark, or not Mark Miller, uh, Frank Miller. All right, yep. anything else of note? Ah, I don't think so. There's a lot of, you know, we didn't mention Centurions, but uh, <laughs> I think we will later, maybe. So. <laughs> well, we'll have to, because, you know, the, the, our listeners loved us talking about Centurions so much last time. <laughs> All right, well, we are going to take a short promo break right now, people. When we return, it's what you have been waiting so long for. Batman 409 is next. Don't go away. It's J.L. May We're covering the Silver Age This J.L. May A comic event from Mark Wade We're crossovering a podcast There's 12 of us involved Get it in your ear holes, this J.L. We'll tell you all All about the Silver Age It's not great But it's okay We really have to warn you It has a controversial one where Mark Miller wrote the lead. But it also has some good stuff. Challenges of the unknown. Green Lantern Flash Patrol of Doom. The seven soldiers of victory are in there too. The annual JLMA event is upon us once more. In 2018, we're reading The Silver Age from 2001. The journey begins in the podcast Justice's First Dawn and continues in the shows Relatively Geeky, Coffee and Comics, Supermates, Waiting for Doom, Idlehead of Diablo, The Longbox Crusade, The Lantern Cast, Batgirl to Oracle, Comic Reflections, Cosmic Treadmill, The Fire and Water Podcast. Do you know it's JLMA? The date. It came out in 2000. We got it right. And we're ready for some fun. Do, Do you know, know it's JLL? It all begins this May. Something. Batman 409 is cover dated July 1987. According to Mike's Amazing World of Chicken and Waffles, the actual on-sale date was April 7th, 87. 
The book cost 75 cents in the U.S. Ed Hannigan and Bruce Patterson provided the cover, which shows Batman leaping into brawl with a dozen street toughs. Sorry, half a dozen street toughs. I'm kind of upping the stakes on my own. Half a dozen street toughs armed with chains and tire irons. The gang is being led by the elderly Ma Gunn, who calls out orders from the foreground. Chris, what do you think of this cover? <laughs> uh, Ed Hannigan, you know, he did a ton of covers on Batman during the Minch run. I think he was DC's art director at one point, I think, during this time. Uh, most of those covers he did are pretty good, and a few are, like, they're near iconic. But I don't really like this one. They're, Batman's head is hard to pull off from that overhead perspective, and it looks really weird here. Mm. It's just it just doesn't look quite right. Uh, these are supposed to be the kids at Ma Gun School. They all look like they're – they must be kids from a CW show <laughs> uh, because <laughs> they look like they're 30-something. I don't mind no backgrounds on covers. I'm not one of those people that's like, oh, it's got to have some kind of background or, you know, because I understand that sometimes it just muddies the water. But I think there should have been a little background here. This this just kind of seems rushed. And the big thing is, where's Jason Todd? <laughs> so you actually want more of Jason Todd in this? <laughs> not, not really, but I mean, it's, it's essential to the story. It'd been nice to have seen him on the cover somewhere. <laughs> uh, I, I, I like this cover a lot. Um, okay. Now, now, part of it could be nostalgia, and I'll explain that for uh, in a little bit. I will say, and let me ask you this, because you might agree with this. Problems with this cover notwithstanding, I think this is the best part about this comic by a pretty wide margin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll pretty much agree with that. Yeah, okay, okay, so <laughs> foreshadowing the discussion that's to come after this. Um, and I, like, yeah, I, I think in this one, every there's so much going on with so many, so much action. I don't really mind the lack of background. Um, for some reason, I think yellow just works as a cover, as a background cover on comics covers. Like especially mm-hmm. when there's nothing else going on, I just think the yellow it, it pops, and I'm I'm thinking of the more recent the uh, Batman and Robin cover from issue one from the um, Grant Morrison uh, Frank Quitely era. Oh yeah, that just yeah. had had the the um, Dick Grayson Batman with Damien and just a yellow background. I think that really worked. Um, mm-hmm. I like it here, but now as I was kind of going in, like I get nostalgic when I see this cover because this was one of the first back issues of a Batman comic that I ever got, and I've mentioned it before, but it's, it's kind of been so long ago. I really didn't start collecting the Batman like floppies, like individual issues, until 1990. The first issue of Batman that I got from the store, like off the rack, was issue 450, but. The glorious days of the early 1990s in my town, there were at least four different places where I could get comics. Um, there was the grocery store, the Eagle Grocery Store, which was just like two blocks away from my house where you know I could walk or ride my bike over there really easily. Uh, that was where I discovered comics, like just like a rack by the magazines. And that's where I was getting you know my Batman and my G.I. Joe comics and detective comics. But within a few years... I realized that also within biking distance, there were three other stores where I could get comics. One was Fantasy Comics, which was a dedicated comic book shop. I remember the day that it opened, my mom told me about it, and we went there. I was one of the first customers. Uh, that was a place that I always went to to get new stuff. I mean, it was just like it was the comic store. That's where I got my like my new stock, whatever I was looking for. 
there was a place called Northern Lights Bookstore, which was more of a college bookstore. Uh, they had comics and trades, but they definitely leaned more toward the mature end of stuff. They had a lot of vertigo and image and dark horse. Uh, that's the that's where I kind of first discovered Sandman Mystery Theater, Hellboy, Sin City, a lot of that stuff. Then there was a place a little bit further out called Silversmiths. Silversmiths dealt in a lot of like trading cards, baseball cards, sports memorabilia, and old comics, like back issues, not old, old. Well, they did have a bunch of old, but it was more, it was out of my price range. Um, but they had, I don't think, any new stock unless it was like overvalued during the speculator boom. <laughs> but I remember going to Silversmiths one time and getting Batman 409 through 411, so the next couple issues from this run. Um, and I just, like, these were some of the first, you know, back issues that I got for, from Batman when I was collecting, like, the new stuff. So for that reason, I've always kind of had, like, a nostalgic feel for these, not necessarily the stories as we'll go through them, but just, like, when I see the covers, it reminds me of that era. So that was kind of, that was, that was me. Okay, well, I can, I can see that. I, I do have to ask, was at Silversmiths, did the, did the baseball card guys scream at you for being in there looking at comic books or anything like that? Cause <laughs> I, I barely – I just remember him being old and, like, not really talking. Like, I, I think he was he was probably the kind of shop owner who didn't like kids in his store, even right. though we were probably like, – like, I think he, like, really he, – he wanted, like, the older, like, the baseball card or the people who value that were going to pay, like, $50 for a card or something like that and kind of like get them through the day or something. He didn't like us. But. Right, right. Yeah, I was just asking because I know that's a stereotypical thing, and yeah. I actually ran into that because the first comic shop I started going to, uh, I didn't get there very often because it was in Lexington, which is about an hour away from me, but – when I did go, it was a store called Comic Connection, and uh, started going there about around the time this book came out. I bought the the trade paperback of The Dark Knight uh, Returns mm-hmm. uh, there as my first trip to a comic shop, and you know, within a few years, they during the baseball card boom of the yep. late '80s, early '90s, they added a baseball card section, and the guy that worked the baseball card section was a total a hole. <laughs> I mean, there's just no two ways about it. That guy was he was a big unwashed, sweaty, overweight, nasty, uh, you know, con funk guy. I mean, I hate to be, it, was, it was it was like every stereotype of a bad comic shop experience rolled into one. And yeah, he, he was the type that's like, I'm strictly baseball. I cannot answer your <laughs> questions about comic books. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, worst episode ever. I mean, you know, you, you, you he's the comic book guy. I mean, mm. was, except he wasn't into comic books, which is even worse. It's just in the so, cards, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> with with that in mind, let us get into this story. Batman 409, Just Another Kid on Crime Alley, is written by Max Allen Collins, penciled by Ross Andrew, inked by Dick Giordano, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited by Denny O'Neill. Picking up immediately after last issue, Batman leaves Crime Alley feeling really good about himself. Earlier that night, the anniversary of his parents' murder, by the way, the Cape Crusader had caught a young street kid named Jason Todd boosting the tires off of the Batmobile. Rather than turn Jason over to the police or child services, Batman brought the kid to Faye Gunn's School for Boys, hoping the woman's unorthodox approach to Gotham City's youth will give Jason the chance to escape the shackles of crime and poverty. But the Dark Knight detective doesn't know the truth of Ma Gunn's school. The woman suspects Batman of sending Jason there to spy on her operation and orders her star pupils, a group of thieves and pickpockets, to eliminate Jason. 
three boys gang up on Jason, but he fends them off pretty easily. A lot more pile on him, all while Ma Gun corrects their syntax and vocabulary. Finally, Jason is subdued. He swears that he's not working for Batman. The vigilante dumped him there instead of social services. Ma Gun is impressed enough by his attitude and skill that she changes her mind and decides to take Jason Todd on as a new student. The next day, Bruce Wayne visits a clinic in Crime Alley owned by the Wayne Foundation. He asks for information about Jason Todd's parents, and I guess because he's super rich, the records clerk just gives him the file on Jason's mother, Catherine Todd, who died of a drug overdose months ago. On his way out, Bruce is stopped by Vicki Vale, who is doing one of several new pieces on Crime Alley. Vicki convinces Bruce to accompany her to Faye Gunn's school. Ma Gunn does a TV interview and gives Bruce and Vicky a tour, showing her students in the classroom. Bruce Wayne leaves thinking Ma Gunn genuinely cares about the teaching of Gotham's children. But Bruce doesn't see what she's teaching them. After the press leaves, Ma returns to her lessons on the distinctions between automatic pistols and revolvers. She admonishes one of the kids for smoking marijuana in class, encouraging him to drink booze instead. Jason sits silently at his desk and decides this new school isn't right for him. That night, he drops out by climbing out the window. At about the same time, Batman climbs through the window into Commissioner Gordon's office. Gordon gives Batman the file on Jason's father, Willis Todd, who has a long rap sheet of arrests and convictions. Gordon says Willis Todd is presumed dead after he double-crossed one of Batman's rogues, Two-Face. Back in Crime Alley, two college kids try to score drugs from the corner. Inexplicably, the dealer tries to rob the kids by bringing in some thugs to menace the college kids. Batman arrives and beats up the dealer and his muscle, although one of the hoods lands a shot from behind before Batman takes him out. The Dark Knight then gives the college kids their money back and tells them to go home and stay off of drugs, just as you would expect Batman to do in this situation. <laughs> Batman chides himself for allowing one of the punks to hit him when his back was turned and thinks about how much he'd come to depend on Robin watching his back. Serendipitously, Batman walks by Ma Gun's school for boys. He considers checking in on Jason's progress, but notes all of the lights are out of the school. Further down the street, a man discovers that someone has stolen the tires from his car, a familiar M.O. Batman finds Jason back at his lowly apartment, asking him why he broke their deal. While Jason is forced to return the stolen tires, he tells the Dark Knight all about Fagun's real curriculum. When the car's owner distracts Batman, Jason runs off and disappears into the night. Meanwhile, across town, Ma Gunn and her students break into the Gotham Art Museum. Their goal? Steal the Smile of Death gems that the Joker tried to steal last issue, and then sell them to the Joker, or at least his minions who aren't stuck in Arkham Asylum. Batman comes in through the skylight, catching Ma and her boys in the act. He drops down and fights the boys and Ma herself, knocking them all out. But he missed one of the lookouts, who drops an oversized display gem on his back. Jason appears and calls out to Batman, trying to warn him, but he's too late. The gem crashes on Batman, stunning him. Jason confronts the last kid, kicks the gun out of his hand, and knocks him out with a left hook. As Batman ties up the captured Ma Gun and her students, Jason tells him that he didn't think Batman believed his story about her crime school, so he came to the museum to stop them himself. Jason wants to bug out before the cops arrive, but Batman offers him a ride in the Batmobile. Jason warns the Cape Crusader that if he's turned over to social services, his chances of ending up in a safe, loving family are slim to none. As the two drive off together, 
Batman thinks otherwise and calls Jason Robin. The end. So, what do we think? <laughs> oh, what do we think? Well, I think, obviously, Ma Gunn has given Batman far more credit than he's due in this story when she <laughs> thought that he had planted Jason there as a mole. <laughs> That came up in the last one. It's like, for a detective, Batman is not a good detective. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I have I have a theory on this. It, it kind of came to light because um, m- my kids were watching Dick Tracy, the movie. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Danny had never seen it. And uh, she saw something on YouTube that referenced it. And she said, what's that? And I said, oh, we've got it. And, uh, you know, Andrew pointed out, it's like, man, Junior, his story's like Jason Todd. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, the kid, yeah. And, and, yeah, the kid, yeah. I said, uh-huh. So that's kind of, like, changed my perspective on things there a little bit, and we'll get into that as we go along, but I, I've, I've got a theory that we'll get to at the end of this. At the end of this. <laughs> Did Max Allen Collins have anything to do with the Dick Tracy movie? He didn't have anything to do with the movie, but he wrote the strip for, you know, years and mm, years. Yeah, yeah, I wonder if, oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and he wrote a couple of articles in the back of his earlier issues that made the Batman Dick Tracy connection. Mm-hmm. Yes, he did. And, yeah. yeah, and so I'm thinking he uh, has <laughs> them a little overly connected and doesn't realize the differences between Batman and Dick Tracy is part of the problem. Uh, so, <laughs> um, all right, getting into some of the details. First of all. Am I right? It's been so long since we've covered this. Didn't Jason say in issue 408 that his mom died of cancer? Uh, I, I don't think so. I thought he did say something about drugs. I thought. Mm-hmm. Okay. I could I, be wrong. I don't, have it, I don't have it handy here, I don't think. I would look it up, but... Well, we'll leave that to the we'll leave that to the readers. Maybe I'm wrong. For some reason, I wanted to say that he said his mom died of cancer, and then this issue, it's a drug overdose, but whatever. Oh, yeah, you might be right. You might be now that you're... Yeah, I'm kind of foggy on that. Now I'm, get, I'm getting later stories mixed in with with what we talked about too. So yeah, um, you could be right. Yeah, that there's something in there that sounds familiar too. <laughs> we should have went back and listened to the last episode. I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we made a big deal about the fact last time that the people of Crime Alley know that Batman goes to Crime Alley the same night every single year. Mm-hmm. Okay, that in itself brings up a lot of problems. It complicates his identity and the secret and everything like that. Like, that should tell you something. But in this one, it sort of establishes, like, that's the only night of the year that he goes to Crime Alley. Like, when he shows up to, like, and he's, like, beating up the drug dealers, like, what are you doing here? You were just here last night. It's like, really? Does Batman only stop by Crime Alley once a year? Like... (laughs) Especially when you realize that in this continuity, his surrogate mother has a clinic there. <laughs> like, like oh, 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 man, there they was so much – this whole thing with the drug dealers. I, I was reading this and I was like, does does Max Allen Collins not – does he not understand just how business works? Like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Like, drug dealing, like, 101, like, okay, the guys come to, to buy drugs from you. You don't beat them up and take their money because then you get $50 maybe. But if you sell them drugs, they'll come back again and again and again. 
And again, that's how that they get hooked and everything. That's how repeat customer. That's how basic business works. That's like finance. Like, dude, like, what is your like? What kind of drug dealers are these? That's like going into Five Guys and asking for a burger and a sack <laughs> of fries, and they beat the hell out of you. Yes. <laughs> Take your money, and then they expect you to come back again later. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'll show you. It's like what? What is your business model, dude? Like, <laughs> and, and we'll get into the art later. But what's with the guy? Like, he's in like a three-piece suit with a bow tie. Oh. I mean, who? What? <laughs> yeah, these are like obviously like the preppy rich kids from out of town. But like, what? oh my gosh! <laughs> I hear these drugs are quite keen. Let's go get us some. You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh. This reminded me of um, an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia when Dennis and, and Dee are trying to like buy crack and they just have no idea what they're doing. They just drive up. To, it's like, we'd like to buy one crack rock. Is that right? How, mu- how much do you like? What would you recommend for somebody who doesn't really know what they're doing? Like, do you think one is enough to get us high? Should we buy two? One, one for each of us? <laughs> oh, wow, you scared us. Oh, not because you're black. No, 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 we're not, not racist. No, God, no, no, it's just that the neighborhood is scary. If you were another ethnicity, you, you popped yeah, yeah. really But, but it's a up. nice neighborhood. I no, mean, it's an okay, the it's the nature of this. Roll your window down. Okay. What you need? Uh, one, please. One what? Uh, one, one rock of One crack. crack. A crack rock. Is that enough? Is one crack rock enough? Um, How much would you recommend for a first-time user? Tell you what, I'll make you a deal. Two for the price of one. Really? That sounds good. Oh, that's very nice of you. How much? Two hundred dollars. Okay. Sounds reasonable. Be about two hundred. Th- thanks for being so kind mm-hmm. and patient. Pick it up down there. Wait, wh- where? Well, which? This one. It's gotta be that guy. Don't say this one. We. I know we're gonna have to go beat for beat, but yeah, it's there's so much of that in this story, and it and I. And again, I will I will put this to you guys. It has been months since we covered the last issue, so much that we don't even remember what J- Jason said about his mom dying. Uh, but I tried to come to this fresh again. I tried to be objective, not just come at it because I I do not, as a rule, do that. I do not, uh, you know, come at comics or things we review on a podcast with the idea of just trashing them, bashing them, and uh, yeah, there. The, <laughs> <laughs> I, I've tried and failed to find something right. that, that good in this. So <laughs> this, this, like, yeah, like I, I keep coming back to the scene with the drug. Dealer. Like this seems like, like Max Allen kind of like maybe not understanding or or really underestimating like the age or the intelligence of it. Like just really thinking he was writing down to younger kids and thinking, okay, we want to make sure that they, they understand these people are bad. Okay, so we're gonna have drug dealers, but the drug dealers they're also like traitors they're going to turn their back on it this is how we scare kids off of drugs because like you can't even like actually buy drugs from them they'll they'll try to stab you they're like they'll beat you up and everything like that's how bad drugs is it's like what 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 <laughs> <It's> like, yeah <laughs> 
you know, in, in like what, you know, several years before, uh, Marv Wolfman and George Perez had done a much better, you know, drug, anti-drug themed comic that was a giveaway to schools p- sponsored by Keebler. You know? <laughs> so, all right. So back to the beginning, all the things that we thought were problematic and kind of dumb about the last issue. We open up with Batman thinking, I did a pretty good job. <laughs> Yay me. I'm kidding. It's like, oh boy. This is a... I, I found this boy on the street. I didn't turn him into social services who can help him. I took him to this this woman who runs this disreputable school that's not accredited. Yeah. Uh, and I feel pretty good about that. And I, I'm supposed to be, you know, I know he's not Bat God yet, but he is the world's greatest detective, y'all. I mean, come on. <laughs> he should be suspicious of anybody that's not that he doesn't have intel on it's on the complete up and up that's especially if they've got kind of a social services doesn't like them you know i mean and from from all accounts it sounds like he wouldn't know anything about this woman and her operation if it wasn't for vicky vale yeah that vicky vale vicky vale <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, so we see that Jason can can handle himself. He's you know, in addition to having like the streets to smart, so you know he he takes out the first couple of these guys. It's only when they vastly outnumber him that he's subdued. Right, and he's fighting the Bowery Boys again. It's yeah. the same guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say I I I give Collins tried to give Ma Gunn that kind of uh, give her a hook where you know yes she's running this this school for for young criminals but she corrects their grammar their syntax like you said mm-hmm. uh it's something that's like straight out of like the 60s tv show or something like that but it is kind of like a gimmicky thing that the the comic books came up with for each of the bat villains so i kind of appreciate that but it yeah it's like the character just doesn't work and then of course like we said the Fagun, fagan you right. know well, twist. That's what that was kind of my position with the last issue with 408, which is, you know, I think this issue came out 20 years later than it should have. Like, like I think Max Allen Collins is writing in the style of and and maybe for an audience that he thinks like the people who are watching the the TV show or like in the 60s kind of contemporaneously or or who are growing up with with the, the newspaper strips or something like that. But it's. He's got a different audience of a different era now, and it just comes off as kind of juvenile and silly at a time when DC wants you to think the opposite. So right, and we've of course, of course, we've covered the the Bar Davis run, and they managed to balance the you know the more Bronze Agey mm-hmm. uh, Batman. I mean, you know, like we've said, you know, Bar's Batman is super chummy with Robin, very much like Adam West was, but he's also the guy that threatens prison rape against Profile. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> but they make it work somehow. Yeah, I think uh, Mike Barr had a better handle than yeah. a handle on the character and the world. And he just, he'd been in comics in the field for years, whereas yeah. Collins, he'd been in the, the strips and everything, but he was kind of an outsider to this this medium a little bit. Um, yeah. Opposite page five, uh, there's an ad, and I usually don't go through these and really think about the ads that much, but there's an ad for the Nintendo game Bionic Commando. That was one of my favorite Nintendo games of all time. I played that so much. That was such a fun game. You just shot things, and you had a grappling hook that let you swing around. (laughs) 
Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that, that was a cool game. I I think you must have. It's another case where you might have. Is this a reprint? Is my yeah. I think you've got one of those multi pack versions because I've got an ad for the uh, the Andy Helfer uh, Bill Sinkovich Shadow series. Oh okay. Yeah. So I and I've got another version of this issue. Hold on, I've got two. I bet you the version I've got it's got a TSR ad on the back. The one um, you got. Turbo Graphics. Oh, you got TurboGram. Wow, we've got like three different versions of this comic going yeah. on here. Yeah, because the ver- on page opposite of page five, I've got uh, uh, John Elway's quarterback for Nintendo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is a it's amazing how many times these books and it's the Collins issues. I know. <laughs> Man, the first three ads in this are all for Nintendo games. Sky Shark, Operation Wolf, Bionic Commando. Well, while we're at it, I'll go ahead and mention we're talking about ads. This is this shows you where DC's at in 1987, folks. Mm-hmm. Okay, opposite of page eight in my book, I've got an ad for Green Arrow, the Longbow Hunters. You know, it's this day is the first day of the rest of his life. You've got uh, a long shot of, of of Oliver Queen with the arrow right in front of his eye. You got another small. You got three panels that you see from the book. One, the guy's got his hand over Black Canary's mouth with a knife. The middle one's the one that really gets me. It's it's Ollie and Dinah in bed, uh-huh. and she's topless. Uh-huh. Uh, it's just her arms covering up her naughty bits. Mm-hmm. And then there's people being thrown out of a glass window or something. Uh, it's just a good day to be Green Arrow, the Longbow Hunters, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you flip that over, and on the exact opposite of that page is an ad for Centurion. <laughs> <laughs> A very cartoony ad for the Centurions comic. It looks like uh, definitely like a, a kid's Saturday morning cartoon comic. Read the DC Comics miniseries, it says, you know. Uh, so if that doesn't show you where DC was at, you know, where they were transitioning from the squeaky clean, kid-friendly comic company to more adult fare, then I don't know what does. So <laughs> every, every ad in my copy is for a Nintendo game or joysticks. Yeah, <laughs> some kind of like video game cartridge. There are no house ads for any other comics, projects, or anything like that. It's all video games. Isn't that funny? I think that's they must stuff those reprints with uh, video game ads. And like, I've got a TSR ad on the back of mine. I've got yeah. Oh, here's Bionic Commando. It's on uh, opposite of page sixteen for me. Mm. So uh, yeah, and you know we're talking about all these ads because we really don't want to talk about this comic. <laughs> 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 We're trying not to be brutal, people. We don't want to be brutal. Nightcast but... episode 18, <laughs> everything but Batman 509. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Well, getting back getting back to the story. Okay, we see Bruce Wayne. If, if it's okay, we can jump yeah, ahead. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, is he at Leslie's clinic? Uh, we, I think we questioned that last time. If he was – he's at the clinic in – Crime Alley. So I'm assuming it's Leslie's clinic, and it kind of makes sense why they would let him look at records and things because he pretty much bankrolls the place. I mm-hmm. guess he's kind of their boss in a, in a way. I guess, um, but again, we don't see her, and I think a cameo would have made this this new era of Batman we're in seem more cohesive because. We're in like two different universes. Oh, well, well, three different universes now because if Batman, your one's its own thing, mm-hmm. and then you got the the Davis Bar run, Bar Davis run, and now you got the Collins run. They don't. It's like we're dealing with three different Batman universes at this point. 
It's very strange. Yeah, I didn't even think about it, but yeah, it would make sense if it was Leslie's clinic, and then where is she? That would be that would be the obvious tip-off. So, yeah. uh, well, well, we haven't really discussed the art yet. What did you What did you think of the art in this one? Um, the art is mostly fine. Again, like I mean, I like Ross Andrew. Uh, I think he's one of the best Spider-Man artists. But I mean, that's you know talking about an era ten years before this. Um, it's. It just seems a little bit behind the times for the story and for this issue. I, I, I don't know. I guess I think the art is generally okay for the story. It just it feels like this this story just feels old fashioned and a little dated for when the story is being taken place. I would have preferred Ed Hannigan to do the interiors, um, mm-hmm. of course. But I'm trying to think if there was any real standout images or any images that. I didn't like. Obviously, Andrew's Jason Todd looks different than what we got in the last one. Right. Um, he's got a lot longer hair. Yeah, he's, he's a lot different than Chris Warner's. He looks older mm-hmm. than than he did last issue, really. Um, yeah. What did uh, you think? I, you know, I like Ross Andrew. I I remember him on Spider Man. I he was did a lot of DC covers in the late seventies, early eighties. He became an editor at DC at the time, so I think he was. Uh, I think he was editing The Flash when they killed off Iris West, if I remember right. So um, I think he supplemented his, his editorial work with, with doing a lot of covers. And before Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, name uh, he did quite a bit of licensing and merchandising art before the DC style got kind of locked into place. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so he saw his artwork on a lot of stuff. And I would say that based on – what else we know of Ross Andrew from around this period? Yeah, I mean, it's 10 years earlier with the Spider-Man stuff, but even earlier in the 80s with the DC covers. I think that, and I could be wrong, but I think Collins probably had this issue scripted out pretty thoroughly. I think he, I don't think he left a lot uh, open for the artist to kind of interpret mm-hmm. because these are very undynamic pages. They're very stiff, yeah. Yeah, and Andrew is not stiff. At right, all, I mean, his right. stuff is always very kinetic. I mean, think about he did the the Superman Spider Man Treasury, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I mean that thing. I mean, yeah, I know he had the widescreen format, but that thing is full of dynamic angles, and even his stuff back in the '60s that he did for DC, you know, his Wonder Woman and Metal Men and things. There's always like figures like flying in from off panel, and and it's not here. It's very stiff, very. Matter of fact, it- part of it, part of it, I'm thinking also could have been a time constraint thing. I mean, I don't think Chris Warner wasn't supposed to be on the on the book for one issue. No, uh, no. So, so based on the timeline, when Chris Warner has to leave, it might have been a thing where they got they pulled Ross Andrew just because he was available for a really quick fill in, and he didn't have a lot of time, so he didn't do any kind of experimentation or really try like he didn't try to blow them away. He just had to do a pretty basic job in order to get it done by the deadline. Yeah, I, I mean, there's even a from the den in the back that basically says, you know, Ross Andrew walked in, ro- walked into the office, and he said he had a hole in his schedule, and they filled it because Chris Warner had they lost Chris Warner, they the book had gotten behind, so this is definitely a rush job, mm-hmm. and I mean, for a rush job, it actually looks pretty good, but it's not up to Ross Andrew's usual dynamic standards, and I actually think if he'd had the time to draw it the way. That he normally would have drawn a book back then, we would have we could say, well, at least the art's pretty cool, you yeah. know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Dick Giordano, even his stuff is like not 
I, you know, it, it doesn't even look so much like his Batman because usually he tends to kind of overpower uh, people mm. that, because he's got a very strong style for Batman and Batman's his favorite character, he said. And, I, you know, it could be one of those cases where maybe Dick Giordano's studio <laughs> yeah. inked it. Maybe Frank McLaughlin inked, inked this or something. Uh, I don't want to come out and say that outright, or maybe they inked parts of it. But, uh, yeah, it's it, the art's good. It's it's fine. It's serviceable. But it's it's nothing it's nothing dynamic that kind of helps smooth over the problems with the story, unfortunately. Right. Uh, there was one line that there was one thing in here that I did like when Vicky wanted to get a picture of Bruce with the people at the clinic and his line about not appearing in this three piece suit when the clinic with the clinic's patients are not in their, you know, their yeah. best. Uh, that was actually a nice touch for both of them yeah. because I, I thought that was kind of, you know, the, you know, cause Vicky was being a little, you know, seedy there and Bruce called her out on it. Yeah. <laughs> so, like that. <laughs> I like that too. That was a good bit of good bit of dialogue, good characterization there. Yeah. Yeah. Then we then we get Bruce taking the tour of the school and being totally fooled, just going going along with this woman and her teaching <laughs> methods and not asking questions that would you know arouse suspicion. Um, not not a great detective. No. And I mean, he didn't even, you know, like on the animated series, when they put Bruce Wayne in those situations, you know, they would have the very flippant Bruce Wayne, like ask the kind of he he was smart enough to ask the kind of questions that didn't seem to be out of place for Bruce Wayne to ask, but still got Batman the information he needed, you know, mm-hmm. but this this Bruce Wayne isn't even suspicious, you know, it's <laughs> at all. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I think if. Maybe if he, he, maybe if Batman took Jason to, you know, social services and they put him in Maul Gun School and he was a little hmm about it, you know, a little suspicious, and then you know Jason helps confirm his suspicions, that would have made Batman not look like such a dope, you know, right. <laughs> but, but still got the story done the way they wanted it, or even so. like establish that he's distracted because he fired dick and they're fighting or something like that and i don't know yeah i'm trying to i'm trying to come up with like reasons and explanations for some of this behavior and i'm feeling like they i don't even think they mentioned dick grayson by name in this one like they're already just trying to like move along but he he returns to crime alley the next night because he wants to check on jason we have this encounter with the drug dealers which i've already said it's just like Oh, that's such a stupid forced thing, and that's not how any kind of economy works. He gets he gets hit from behind, and he starts thinking, "Oh, I I never realized how much I need somebody watching my back." And okay, and then that's pretty much the only setup we have for why he would eventually take Jason on by the end of this. But I I, I don't know. Like I I don't think we've earned this connection that he goes back the second day to check on Jason and see how he's doing, and that he's so concerned with this kid. Like right. They're forcing this connection with this kid, but they haven't earned it because they didn't earn why he fired Dick in the previous issue. So right. it's it just it reads very forced and very clunky, and it's just trying to do something and, and I think underestimating the the scrutiny of the audience. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, and it's even more insulting, really, to longtime fans that, that he... And I know that's at the end of the story, but when you brought up he, you know, he makes that comment when the guy hits him with the trash can from lid from behind, 
and he says that about uh, hmm, I I didn't realize how much I depended on Robin watching my flank or whatever he said. And it's like okay, that's what makes him say hmm, I really could use another Robin. They are pretty useful, you know. I mean, you know, it's like you you got a favorite pair of jeans that you've worn for years, and it gets a hole like back around the pocket, and you're like. Man, I you know I, I think honestly I'd be like, man, I really hate to throw these jeans out more than Bruce thought about Dick Grayson. You know what I mean? It's like it's it's his son more or less. It's yeah, just, it's, like... it's just oh, it, it 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 doesn't help. It makes it worse, Max. I'm sorry that doesn't that doesn't help because it's not like he's he's missing him on an emotional level that he misses the camaraderie that he misses. You know that he's he 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 realizes he made a mistake. He pushed his son away, and now he's lonely. No, it's that hmm. You know, it's Robin. A, it's a tactical thing. He needs somebody to for the for strategy to, to for defense. Yeah, it's oh. Yeah, it's like Robin the boy hostage. I need I need him. <laughs> you know, here. Um, it's it. Yeah, it's yeah. I it and there's 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 one part that really just like an image that just like jumped out at me. Um, while Gordon is looking up the Todds for Batman, uh, which one later on, if Gordon didn't know that Bruce was Batman when he adopts Jason Todd, uh, you know, I mean, come on. But anyway, (laughs) uh, let's not even go there. But Batman's just casually sitting on his, on Gordon's couch (laughs) with his leg, like his arm over the back of the couch and his leg up on his knee and I have never Adam West wouldn't even do that. He would he wouldn't even sit down on on Commissioner Gordon's couch in his office. He was always standing around, you know, and it, it just I, I, why come through the window if you're just going to casually go sit on the dude's couch? You know, it's like. Did, did he did he sit there and drink a a pop with him or yeah you know, that's the, this, this such peanuts. a comforting thing like they're like watching TV or something it's just like hey how's your day it's yeah. Just, yeah, he's like he's lounging back. He's got his arms thrown up over the back of the couch. He's got his legs crossed. I mean, go. I mean, I always bring it up the animated series, but go to uh, uh, the Holiday Nights episode of the new Batman Adventures, where uh, which is based on the the Batman Adventures Holiday Special, but uh, where they do the uh, the New Year thing at the end, where uh, it establishes that every New Year's Batman and Gordon get together at this diner and have a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. And but Batman like is quickly in there. He comes in, he pays for the coffee, and he disappears just like he's supposed to. I mean, yeah, that that's like the one time of year that Batman lets himself do something like that, and he does it like super quick. It's over and done with, and it's just like his his concession to the fact that Gordon Brandon is ally, you know. And, but this Batman's like lounging on his couch, yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. But we do learn that Two-Face is probably responsible for the death of Willis Todd, Jason's father. Uh, so now it's not Killer Croc as it was in the pre-crisis continuity who killed Jason's parents. It's now Two-Face. So And Killer Croc will never recover from this. Because no, he the, will not. The most special thing about him has been taken away, and he will basically lose his sense of humanity as every new artist kind of reinterprets him to look more and more like a dinosaur. Yep. I, I, another thing I'll point out is the fact that we saw a little bit of this last time when Batman was just strolling down Crime Alley, and he said, like, hello, citizen, or whatever <laughs> it was he said. I don't know if he said that, but it's pretty much. And 
he's just walking around and, and the guy that got his tires stolen is not – I mean I'm sorry. You should be slightly freaked out that this guy's standing around in a costume. You know, <laughs> it's like he's not even – I don't want him to be scared of him, but I want him to be like, oh, wow, uh, hey, Batman, uh, it's really you. Oh, OK, uh, yeah, some kid like stole my tires or something. You know, it's, it's OK. I'll take care of it. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know, but this guy's just like this is this is super civic minded Batman. You know, <laughs> yeah, this is like a Bob Haney Brave and the Bold era. Like this is just a friendly Batman who you just see on the street. It's just a guy who happens to be dressed like this. Like this is not the Batman of Batman Year One, which was two issues ago. Like this, is, <laughs> like you said, every every different writer they're like creating their own little parallel universes. And Denny O'Neill, dude, you. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the editorial uh, editorial direction's not quite tight here. I hate mm-hmm. to say, yeah. Um, you know, I, that brings up another question: What is the timeline here? I mean, are we just? And I think it kind of there was a montage of images that kind of paid lip service to some time had passed since Batman had fired Dick before he encountered Jason. Uh, I can't remember what that was. I think I even think Gordon asked, you know, is Robin dead or something? And I think it was only like a month or something like that. Yeah, it was a month or something. Yeah, exactly. So it's only been a, a month or, or a handful of weeks um, because the, 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 the boys at Mogan's school are aware of the Joker's theft of the, the smile of death or whatever it is necklace. Mm-hmm. It's pretty fresh in their mind. So – it has not been very long since Batman fired Dick Grayson. <laughs> the passenger seat in the Batmobile isn't even cold yet. <laughs> and the final fight, the, the sort of climactic battle, it's it's fine, but there's nothing really stand out about it. Even Batman punching an old woman in the jaw. Just <laughs> What was that supposed to be? Is it supposed to be like... It's kind of like when Superman, like Byrne had Superman, and I think it was like, was it in Man of Steel? Or it was in one of his early Superman books where he has him, like, flick the girl just, like, in the head, knock her out or something. She's got, like, a machine gun, and he just, like, beep, you know, which we've seen Superman do that before. Well, okay, that works because he's Superman and he's super strong. So, I mean, did Batman literally just, like, tap her in the chin and that knocked her out? I mean, plus, couldn't he have just, like, restrained her and, you know— She's an old woman. Why not just grab her arm and bat cuff her or something? You know, I mean, it's, it, you know, I know they did the whole thing where it's like, she's like, you wouldn't hit a lady. And he's like, no. And then he punches her saying, oh, you're no lady. Okay. We know that's the whole, you know, gag here. But it's like, he, Batman still punched an old woman, you know, it's like, <laughs> but he didn't have to. He could have like just, just restrained her or tied her up with a bat rope or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, she's got a gun behind her back, and there's no indication that he actually saw that or not. No, so. and based on this Batman, I can't see him yeah. seeing anything that's coming out of left field at him because he's, like, totally oblivious to what's going on, so. <laughs> right, yeah, he get the, uh, one of the goons gets the drop on him again. Yeah. And Jason has to come and take that kid out. And... Yeah, I, ne- I never pasted a jewel thief before when they were talking about the giant paste jewels. I was like, oh, my God, that's just I – know, I know Robin's meant to say bad puns, but oh, yeah. Wow, okay. <laughs> 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 and 
and then he calls him Robin. <laughs> and I can hear, I can hear young Chris just screaming into the heavens. <laughs> Well, we just covered that uh, bit on Superman Movie Minute, you know, with the scream. That was pretty much it. You yeah. Know? <laughs> no, I, I think your scream of rain, you would be like out in the rain. Yeah. <laughs> be like on the rain during a lightning storm and you just like gnashing your teeth and like ripping your shirt. Ah! Yeah, it, was like, it was like the Justice League annual when Aquaman disbanded the Justice League, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's it's like – I mean, it sets up Jason as the rebound Robin. I mean, yeah. it's such a detriment to that character because it, it's 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 like you know Batman, and, and not to get into the whole you know I'm not getting into the romance aspect of you know Batman and Robin because I don't subscribe to that at all. But but just it, like any relationship, like you know you you've you know well I I'm not with this person anymore, but here I'm going to find this person to replace him, and then you call them the same thing. Oh, that's just all kinds of wrong. It's like uh, Jason was so set up to fail right here. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah, he is. It, it's so obvious now looking back at it. It's like, oh man, you guys really, really just dropped the ball. You should have just left well enough alone and let him keep the origin he had and, 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 and moved forward from there and, and tweaked it if you needed to. But it, if they had spread Jason's appearances out over several issues, I know they really couldn't. But if they just. If they had the foresight to say, okay, Jason Todd has not been Robin yet in this new continuity or something, mm-hmm. and and then we start out and, you know, have Batman find him ch- uh, taking the tires off the Batmobile, he puts him in Mob Gun School or something, and make that be a subplot that he starts to figure out, hmm, something's going on here, and, like, Mob Gun's bunch is involved in in various criminal activities and Batman keeps bumping into Jason over several issues, you know, with like maybe several issues in between, then maybe you could see, well, Batman kind of developed a relationship with this kid. He's invested in what happens to him. And if you just had, you know, Dick quit like he did, then sure, that actually would have worked. It would have been fine to make him Robin at that point. But you're, on, you're describing Tim Drake. <laughs> like I, I know they, they learned the lesson. They they realized everything they did wrong this time around and corrected it. That's why Tim Drake got like a year's worth of stories before he ever saw the costume. Right, you're right. I mean, exactly. That's what they did. They they learned from their mistake here. But I mean, they what I'm saying they could have kept the basic idea of the story. Mm-hmm. It's just the way it's presented is no. I I completely agree. It's it's. <laughs> like a tale of two different origin situations because if you look at the pre-crisis origin of Jason Todd and everything and you say, okay, he's in the circus. His parents are aerialists and his parents are murdered by a gangster and he's going to be adopted. It's like, it's uh, it's a clone of Dick Grayson. That is the dumbest, laziest idea I've ever heard, but the execution was so well done that it, they made it really work. Right. Whereas in the post-crisis, okay, he's nothing like Dick Grayson. He doesn't have those changes. He's a street kid. Batman has to rescue... He He actually... He's a street kid who gets the drop on Batman, surprisingly, to actually show that, you know, he's he's there is something exceptional about this kid, and Batman rescues him from a life of crime or poverty or anything, and he's got... He's got a chip on his shoulder. He's rougher around the edges. He's not an acrobat. He's a street fighter. He had to grow up tough that way. That is 
a really good concept for an, a substitute Robin. But the execution is so lackluster that you just... It, it crumbles. So it's like, oh, if they had just if they had been able to reverse those, if they had been able to take this type of premise, this type of setup for who Jason was, and if they had had Jerry Conway and his different artist teams from those earlier eras be able to take their time with it and spread this out over six months to a year before he gets into the costume, then I think you then I think Jason Todd might be the might be the favored son among you know Robin fans. Yeah, possibly. I mean, it, he definitely wouldn't have the the legacy that he, <laughs> that he has now, you know. I, I, and, and I actually wrote, I don't know if I brought it up before, I probably did, but I wrote an article, first article I ever wrote for Back Issue uh, was in issue number 48, and it was about the two origins of mm-hmm. Jason. And, um, you know, at the time, even writing that article, I guess because I wasn't examining, I mean, of course, I reread all the issues and stuff, but... I, I, even at the time, I think I still kind of in the back of my head kind of said to myself, well, yeah, Jason was, you know, th- there was potential there for him to kind of go off the rails, but that Jim Starlin kind of amped it up. I honestly don't think Starlin amped it up that much. I think he took what Collins has laid out here and took it to a more natural conclusion than him actually becoming a good Robin. You know, based on – I mean, if you if you excise all the other appearances of Jason, which are somewhat dubious as to whether they really happened to this particular Jason, you know, uh, then especially like the Bar, the Bar Davis run where he's basically just Dick Grayson the way he acts and, and even his guest appearances in Teen Titans and things like that, then I think you can say, okay, this – Everything is so wrongheaded about what Batman did here and Jason's attitude in this story that you can see him becoming the reckless Robin that Batman has to bench later mm-hmm. in Starlin's run. I mean, I think it really does. I think there's a through line there that even at the time of writing that back issue article, I was still a little, well, I see some of it, but I think he kind of amped it up. I'm kind of changing my opinion on that. Having really talked it out with you through this these podcasts, I'm kind of saying, nope. Sarlin took what was there and said, yeah, this is what would happen to this kid. <laughs> yeah, we don't. We never see the potential for greatness in Jason from these stories. All we see is Batman is lonely. Yeah. Bat- Batman wants a partner, and this kid is a project. Batman wants to reform this kid. He wants to save this kid, and he's he doesn't like being alone. But we don't see the inherent goodness. I mean, yeah, he he narks on on my gun, but really, he only does that when Batman catches him the second time. Really, his first instinct is just to get away from that. is is self preservation. We don't see the the inherent heroism in Jason until he's kind of like forced to be in that position. And yeah, this was this was Batman's reform project, and that's why it was meant to fail. Because this Jason wasn't a hero who needed to be sculpted in the in the proper mold. He was a a a kid with some anger issues. (laughs) And that's that's gonna lead to his death. Well and and you think about it, and I know we'll get into it in the next issue, I think, but I don't think we actually see that scene. But we you know, you have to you have to assume that Batman's taking him back to the Batcave in the Batmobile. Mm -hmm. So when he gets out of the car, he's gonna tell him he's Bruce Wayne. Now, 
He's known, I mean, I know you can say that he didn't know Dick that long. Okay, whatever. This kid has shown to has shown Batman. <laughs> he's been deceitful to him multiple times. Yes, yep. he did save him. He warned him. You know, he showed up to help stop him. Okay, that that's a points in his favor. But he also stole the car off the bat, the tires off the Batmobile. He crowbarred Batman in the back. Uh, he ran away from the school he put him in, and then he stole somebody else's tires. And you're going to trust this guy with your secret identity, <laughs> this kid with your secret identity. I mean, just right off the bat. I mean, it's like, I, the, 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 yeah, it, the more you think about it, it, it works even less, and it didn't work to begin with. So it's it just further falls apart as if you give it much more thought to it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> but uh, like I said, rereading this now, I think post-crisis Jason – was doomed from the start, so we can all stop blaming Rob Kelly for killing Jason Todd. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, nah. but the Dick Tracy, uh, yeah, we'll still blame him. We'll still blame him. But the, but the Dick Tracy thing. I mean, I, I think that Collins overestimated how similar Batman of the of the then modern era and really the era now mm-hmm. is to Dick Tracy. I mean, if you change this, if you replace Batman with Dick Tracy and replaced Jason with the kid who's later Junior Tracy, then I think this story would work a whole lot better. I you know, I, I mean you could because you know Batman, there's little, very little difference between the way Batman operates and Bruce Wayne operates. Mm-hmm. You can have uh, Dick Tracy go to the clinic and find out about what's going on, what happened to his parents. You know, he can go talk to the chief about, you know, like he talked to Gordon. Uh, yeah, I think that Dick Tracy would probably have arrested the kids trying to buy drugs. I don't think he'd let them <laughs> go away because he's a cop. Mm-hmm. But, but other than that, I mean, I think, I think Collins is writing. A Dick Tracy, a new version of the Dick Tracy uh, Jr. origin, he's just substituting Batman in and he's not adjusting as needed. He's keeping him pretty much the same character because Batman is much he, – he's a very civic-minded do-gooder that we have not seen in actual continuity since the 60s and then your occasional Bob Haney story like you said. Right. So uh, – and this does have – it's it's got some of the zany haney trappings without the fun and without yeah. the jim apparel artwork and 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 the really super dense plot that actually you know works despite the wackiness you know so can i can i ask you a question okay you like the cover a little bit better now don't you uh, yeah i i do yeah it's, <laughs> it's yeah the cover i mean i maybe i was being too harsh on the cover but it it's batman's head that really throws me off on the cover i don't know but but yeah, it's and, and you know, and there's some nice there are some nice Ross Andrew, Dick Giordano shots of Batman in this. They're not uh you know, it's it's not it's neither one of their best work even on Batman. Yeah. Um Ross Andrew didn't do a whole lot of Batman, but he did he actually drew some of Bob Haney's Brave and the Bold stories early on before uh Jim Aparo. Uh, so and even those in the late sixties were way more dynamic than than what we're seeing here. But again, it could be the Deadline, and also could be the fact that that's not the way Collins had scripted the action in the story, right. and he didn't feel like he had time to noodle with it. So, but yeah, uh, yeah. I, again, I tried to come at this with a fresh perspective, and even though it doesn't anger me as much because uh, as the last one, because of the whole, you know, like you said, Dick isn't even mentioned, and the whole, 
the whole just dismissal of 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 Dick Grayson isn't isn't front and center in this one as it is. It's still implied, of course, uh, but this one's just like the yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. My my overall take is it's it's a bad story. It's the the overall theme is it's just like it's very dumbed down, very juvenile, forcing things, making the characters act out of character. Batman is is not smart. He's overlooking a lot of things just so that we can have this sort of resolution that's not really like really great, dramatic, or emotional. But I still get hung up on just the scene with the drug dealers at the beginning or at the, in the middle of it. Just like. Why, why, why do they decide to beat up the people who are coming to buy drugs from them? That's not how it's... Uh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. Batman just lets them... Yeah, and he, he just lets even the really, kids walk. Like, I mean, I could see him... I could see him like, you know... Uh, he should at least picked one up by their collar and got up in their face and, like, made them crap themselves or something. You know, I mean, <laughs> before he, if he was going to let them loose. You know, I don't know. But. I would make some classes thing like these. These kids are obviously like the rich, affluent, like preppy kids, not from the crime alley neighborhood, and he's letting them go with a slap on the wrist. You know, just like giving them a warning while he's beating up the people who live in crime alley and everything like that. There's, <laughs> there's some horrible like uh, <laughs> modern thing that we can we can attribute to that. So anyway, yes. folks, we need to take a promo break again. Uh, on the other side, we will get to your listener feedback from Batman Year Two, Chapter One. Stick around for that. Much better comic. <laughs> Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Working together, we saved the planet. And I believe that if we stayed together as a team, we would be a force that could truly work for the ideals of peace and justice. Every episode. My name is Jean. I'm a Martian. Every adventure. <sighs> okay. You guys are so slow. Every hero. Whatever you think you're doing, if you present a threat to the world, the Justice League will take you down. Cindy and Chris Franklin bring you JLU Cast. Whatever the future holds, we'll make those choices ourselves. Don't say you don't love me. I'll never say that. Covering the complete animated run of Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. And the adventure continues. There's strength in numbers. What? Like a bunch of super friends? More like a Justice League. Nightcast, episode 17, covered the first part of Batman Year 2 in Detective Comics 575. That episode came out last year, so... (laughs) That was like five months ago. I am not going back to check on all of the Facebook and Twitter likes that we got on that episode. We do absolutely appreciate everyone who clicked like or favorite or share or retweet, but come on, we're not reading all of your names. Not this time. <laughs> you wanted us to come back for more. We got a compromise. Instead, what we are going to do is jump right into the comments left on the Fire & Water website, which, as always, you can check out at fireandwaterpodcast.com. We received a lot of comments on this episode, and Chris, you responded to many of them yourself, uh, and a lot of them turned into sort of back-and-forth conversational threads, and those are great. I love reading those. We love to see them, Uh, but they're they're often not as conducive to reading on this segment for the feedback, so we're going to do a lot more cherry-picking than usual this time around. Uh, Anyway, 
The first comment we received was from Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast, and also now the DC OCD podcast, dedicating to DC's many event storylines. Paul asked, you couldn't read this to Reese? <laughs> Referring to my read-along with Reese episodes. You know what, I... Uh, I don't think I'm going to start him off of this era of Batman when I'm reading. I'm, I'm going to stick with the little golden books and the, the juvenile stuff for a while. <laughs> uh, Gene Hendricks from the Hammer Strikes blog and podcast said, I'm pretty sure that I'm in the minority here, but I prefer year two to year one. Yes, you're in the minority there, Gene. Sorry. Uh, uh, to me, there's something wrong with trying to ground in reality a man who goes out dressed as a bat to fight crime but doesn't end up shot and killed in his first night. Batman, by his nature, is a fantastic character, and this feels like a Batman story. Year One felt like a Punisher story with a more flashy costume and less guns. Well, you know, I can see, I can see your point, and honestly, I think there is a point where you can make Batman too realistic. I think the Nolan movies treaded that they they were on that line, mm. you know, the, and and. And in some aspects, the the Dark Knight Rises went too far away from the Batman mystique, and but then on the other hands, did some pretty fantastical stuff that seemed to come out of left field, and that's where they lost the balance in that one, I think. So, yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I I certainly I I think Batman Year One is an amazing story, um, and about as grounded and realistic as you can get. It still it feels kind of like an old kind of like pulp noir type of story, a crime story, um, and you don't really want to go more than that. I also understand the feeling why why somebody, a longtime fan of the comics, would say that Batman Year 2 feels more like a Batman story. I completely understand that, and I probably, I might even agree with it. I don't think it's a better story, though. Um, and obviously, we haven't finished Batman Year 2. We're going to have a lot more to say on it. And, but yeah, I, I have been thinking upon rereading and hearing a lot of people's complaints that Batman Year 1, while I, I don't think the problems are... In that story, I do think what we are seeing is the the problem with trying to make that the be-all, end-all origin of Batman in a world that still has all of the other fantastical trappings and tropes of this character. Trying to link those up is not seamless or potentially not even possible. So I think we're going to find... I think we're going to kind of regularly come back saying Batman Year One was problematic not necessarily because of the story as it was presented, but how their their attitude toward it in saying that this is the definitive story that everything else is based on. Well, mm. that doesn't really work. Um, but we'll see. We'll and we'll get definitely get more into that as we cover more chapters from year two. But yeah, and I, I think I think part of it too was that they didn't that Denny O'Neill didn't say, okay, this is where we're going. Mm -hmm. This is what we want to see from now on. And, and gradually evolve that Batman into the more fantastical Batman, the, the escalation as they did in the, as they did in the Nolan movies with, you know, uh, the Joker coming in and, you know, the more fantastical villains and things like that. Uh, I think they could have done that, but again, it's, it's a lack of, of direction to, make everything work together it's a it's a reluctance to to chuck what has gone before and say this is where we're at now mm. you know this is the, you know that we want you know very much so batman year two could have been could have taken place on earth one mm -hmm. uh you know a different it would have 
made some of the stories not work from the previous, like it would have contradicted the Untold Legend of the Batman or something like that. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it could have worked in the pre-crisis continuity. Right. So, uh, Gene's comment kind of led to a, a conversation, a little thread between Gene, Michelle FIFA, and you, Chris. Um, you talked about all of those things that we just mentioned, but uh, also embedded in that was there were plans for Batman and Superman by Miller, Barr, and Steve Gerber? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> he was going to be working on a Batman project? That would be that'd be interesting. Yeah, I, I don't think Gerber ever did Batman, did he? I, that, I, that I know of. Oh. Um, yeah, if, so. if there's more to that story, I'd like to hear about it. So somebody write in. Yeah. <laughs> It's been a while since I left those comments, so I have absolutely no idea what I said, so I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. uh, Michelle FIFA also said, speaking of being in the minority, I like Todd McFarlane's upcoming run. Crude and ill-fitting to what came before, but still fun to look at. Uh, I will reserve my my response to that until uh, next episode. Me as well, because I, I at the time, I loved Todd McFarlane's art, but as an adult going back and looking at it, I've kind of been, you know, there's been, I mean, there's some things at it that I still think are, you know, they're, they're neat, they're dynamic, but there's a lot of it now that I'm looking at going, what was I thinking back then? So, <laughs> I, but I'm willing to, you know, I'm going to try to be totally open-minded about it. Uh, and, uh, we'll, like I was with this issue, we'll go from there. So, uh, the executive producer of Pod Dylan, David A. Gutierrez, said, so glad to have you guys back. Well, <laughs> we're back again. Uh, it's like you're reborn, men of 30 again. Uh, pretty soon Chris will be able to slow down time, but only if he's trapped in a cavern on an alien planet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Rob, Rob Kelly, who started yet another podcast during the hiatus for this show, MASHcast, uh, Rob said, Ryan hit on what was my major beef with year two at the time. The idea there was a costumed vigilante in Gotham before Batman. No, 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 no. I have always liked Mike Barr as a writer, especially on Batman, but this was an ill-conceived idea and should not have gone forward. Plus, as you have discussed, tonally, it's it's so far removed from year one. I'm picturing new readers coming to Batman comics because of year one, and then moving on to year two and going, wait, what the hell is this? And we haven't even gotten to McFarlane yet. Uh, David Ace Gutierrez mentioned after that, he's like, wasn't Alan Scott Gotham's first vigilante? Yes, after the post-credits, they did eventually retcon that uh, Green Lantern was from Gotham City, but... Um, yeah, and this is going to be, we did talk about this a little bit and, and we will continue to do so like the re I like the look of the Reaper. Um, I think it's a cool cosmic. I don't necessarily know if it's the best for a Batman villain. I, I might address that again for upcoming episodes. Um, I don't like that look for a vigilante that predates Batman. And I don't, yeah, I don't really like the idea of a, of a, Gotham vigilante, any like a costumed vigilante that predates the Batman. I don't think that necessarily works. You know, when they collapse the the JSA's history with the Justice Leagues on one Earth, that I mean, it, I mean, honestly, it took away from it took away from Superman being the first superhero. It it created a nice. Uh, I mean, there, there were goods and bads. It created that whole lineage idea, the legacy character idea, made it stronger, but. 
it also with the characters characters that aren't connected like alan scott was supposed to have operated in gotham city well now he was in gotham city before batman and then of course alan brenner will actually have the reaper encounter uh alan scott in that secret origins uh story of, of black canary in issue number 50 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh so you know, it, it, leave it to Alan Brenner to uh, <laughs> to make uh, <laughs> some tasty lemonade out of some lemons there. So, <laughs> uh, uh, Lewis wrote in and said, "I have to wholeheartedly disagree where the Reaper is concerned. The more Gotham and Batman are brought to present ages, the more reasonable it becomes." For there to have been a prior vigilante, obscured by less prevalent media and closer to the time period when Batman busted caps. I like their generation gap and Reaper's armor and Arsenal in comparison to Batman's under armor and non-lethal gear. <laughs> I think he means under like he's under armor, yeah. not that he wears under armor. Uh, Product place. This, yeah, there you go. Where this issue lost me was at the end. Moral questions get mixed. Batman using Joe Chill's gun only works when the owner's around. But Batman using any gun belongs in a different story where he's struggling not with the Reaper, but with Gotham's seemingly unrepentant and irredeemable criminals. Reaper poning Batman should have left him instead with the question of becoming a more warlike Batman. I I agree with the last part. Um, Thinking again, we we will continue to discuss the idea of a vigilante prior to Batman, but looking at the last part... I definitely think the my biggest hang-up with that first issue of year one is Bruce all of a sudden deciding to take out the gun. And it's like, what? where did that come from? Why is that? Um, and I don't know. Maybe we'll get a satisfactory answer to that, but I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, honestly... Uh, it, it, with the armor that he's got, how what good is that gun going to do him? Really, I mean, it doesn't seem like that that gun's even going to help him much with the kind of armor he's got. Mm. So you know, <laughs> he's bringing a pea shooter to a Gatlin gun fight, more or less. You know, <laughs> uh, Dan Doherty called you out, and I think he meant to be joking in this, but he said, "Chris, for the love of Bill Finger, please stop referring to single issues as floppies." Don't you know that's a dirty word to some fans? They're called comic books. Say it right. I and will I, point out that you said floppies this I, issue. I've never had a problem saying that. I, I think I think Dan heard another podcast. Some, somebody went on a tirade against that and, say, and having a problem with floppies. But I've always heard them referred to that way. I have no problem with that term. So you can say floppies. This is this is a free free floppy zone. <laughs> no judgment. <laughs> Mike Gillis from Radio vs. the Martian said, I think I would have been more in step with the urban vigilante vibe and the history of the comics and pulps to instead heavily base the Reaper off of the shadow. A big slouch hat over a skull mask, a cloak and a pair of pistols to mercilessly, to mercilessly gun down criminals. It would have been a neat touch to say that the Batman's crime-fighting predecessor was basically a pulp-style costume hero with the pulp's murkier kill-the-baddies morality. If you want a story that tests Batman's no-kill rule and would play to the tragedy that motivated it, it only makes sense that he should have to battle a gun-wielding vigilante, not one with sides. Uh, yeah, you know, as much as I like the design of the Reaper, I'm kind of thinking that Mike's right here, and I think that would have worked in with Batman Year One better, too. I agree. Yeah, and again, I like the design for the Reaper. I just don't think it's necessarily appropriate for this story and for... This type of for a vigilante who predates Batman, I just think it's too garish. It's too technical. Um, it's it just it doesn't work um, for this type of story that they're 
doing. I think, uh, yeah, what Mike is like absolutely base base the previous make the previous vigilante more like the Punisher or more like the Shadow or you know like a Green Hornet type of character, the Crimson Avenger. Um, you know that that could have been integrated into the story and made it made it a lot more interesting. Um, yeah, and, and it would have fit tonally and 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 visually too. So, yeah, I think so. And, and you know, if, why not just do best of both worlds? He looked like a more pulpy shadow type back in the day, but now he's got a new suit. And yeah. if you want to do both, you know, so. so Jeff R said a Batman year two worthy of the name would have to be as much about how Gordon and Dent cleaned up Gotham than whatever Batman is doing. Probably learning how to fight criminals with gimmicks and powers, inventing his arsenal and toolkit. Yeah. That, that was another issue that like, when we were talking about that, how like they, they call this Batman Year Two, but it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like a sequel because, like the style, like the tone, like the the structure and everything is completely different. So, yeah, I, yeah, it's not really Year Two. I think if they'd even put this as a story, what if they just think about this? What if they had done? If they had done, I, I mean, I still wouldn't want them to fire Dick, but say that they place this story in between the time when there was no Robin and it was later on. I think it would have worked better. And, you know, uh, it's still, I mean, it still could have worked. This doesn't have to be Batman year two in a lot of ways. I mean, I guess him trying to use the gun, you know, but we we can't, we don't really agree that it makes sense that he uses the gun anyway. So I I think if you change, and I think you kind of hit upon this last time, like, if we take the year two out of this, nothing about the story changes. Just don't call it year two and nothing matters. And I think you actually could have taken it as you mentioned this in the last episode. This picks up right after Jason was injured in the previous issues when he had to be taken to Leslie's clinic. Like this takes place. Year two takes place in the time when Jason is recovering from those gunshot wounds. Mm. And now Batman is on his own and he's fighting this other, like this Reaper guy and everything. It's just make it the next saga in, in the story that uh, that Mike Barr was telling, I think that's probably what he had in mind originally when he was told to do this year two thing instead. And he tried to he tried to collapse the two onto one. He tried to compromise and end up not, I think, doing more damage. But it's it's almost like uh, to bring it uh, into into another one of your wheelhouses. It's almost like a Star Wars thing. It's like in twenty years time, how does you and McGregor? Turn into uh, Alec Guinness, you know. It's, <laughs> it's in 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 less than a year's time. How does Gordon go from being, you know, in his like maybe late thirties with red hair to looking like he's in his sixties the way Alan Davis draws the white haired Gordon, you know? Right, right. Uh, so it's it's. Yeah. Remember, Gordon beat up a green beret in the right. first issue of Year One. So that's right. <laughs> so. Uh, Edo Bosnar wrote in and said, uh, since nobody else mentioned it, I have to say I really appreciated your tribute to the late, great Len Wein. Yes, indeed, he wrote some outstanding Batman stories, and like you said, he wrote stories for pretty much every major character in the big two. He really left an indelible mark on the superhero, horror, etc., comics from the early 70s onward. A personal favorite is one you mentioned, The Untold Legend of the Batman. To me, that is still the canonical Batman, not the later stuff, i.e. I don't really acknowledge the reboot that was done in year one. Which leads me to the matter at hand, year two. To some extent, I'll join Gene Hendricks in his minority position. I like year two, but I'll acknowledge that year one, just as a story, without any continuity considerations, or whether it's the real Batman or not, is probably better. But to me, 
year two still feels like my Batman, the Batman that's closer to the pre-crisis canon, which is what we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I, I kind of like the Reaper and really don't see a problem with the existence of a pre-Batman costume vigilante in Gotham. I think it's actually a pretty interesting retcon, and I like how Brenner put him to use in that Black Canary origin story he wrote. Uh, so, yeah, he just made all the points that <laughs> we made. I hadn't read that feedback in a while. Maybe if I, I didn't mean to plagiarize you there, Ed. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, a lot of these things are going to be repetitive as we're kind of making some of the same points that the, the listeners are. So, yeah. um, Mark Baker Wright responded to Edo Boznar's comment, and he said, while I agree that Year 2, specifically as sold as a continuation of Year 1, was a mistake, I feel that Ryan and Chris are entirely wrong to place the blame on Mike Barr. Absolutely, go ahead and blame Denny O'Neill for the role he played, or should have played, as the editor. No objection there. Personally, I think Frank Miller holds the lion's share of the blame for writing a story that simply did not work within the confines of the otherwise existing DC Universe. As a standalone story, Year One is great, but it clearly never worked as any definitive origin of Batman in the wider DC universe in which Batman was not the only superhero ever. Mike Barr, who had been writing Batman for years and knew the character as and his world better, uh, should absolutely not be faulted for writing an early Batman story that worked better within the then-existing universe. Indeed, in responding to comments about his apparent instructions to create this as a follow-up to Year One, nothing that he got from the Year One script to work with, remember that even then was just a script and not a completed story that he eventually saw, at least some of Barr's inconsistencies with Year One may reflect the finished story more than what he was working with. To the extent that this may be true, this again would be the fault of the editor rather than Barr. That said, Barr absolutely does deserve some blame for aspects of the story that didn't work internally. Comments about the way Batman jumps from defeat after his battle with the Reaper to grabbing the gun that killed his parents, for example, are entirely valid. And to Mark's comment, Sesquoy jokingly said, Barr apologists is why I can't pull the trigger on an Outsiders podcast. (laughs) Um, Yeah, uh... I understand his point in, in trying to I, – I understand Mike, Mark uh, – sorry, I understand Mark Baker Wright's point in saying that more blame should be put on Denny O'Neill for the lack of cohesion between the stories. I do agree with that, and I think Barr deserves blame when the story just doesn't work on its own internal logic. Blaming Frank Miller for writing an origin story that doesn't fit within the confines of the greater universe – I mean, I, I'm not one to apologize for Frank Miller, but I don't know what he was assigned to do. If he was told to do it, and that's the way Frank Miller tends to tell the stories, again, that could be on editorial. Um, I'm also not sure if Denny O'Neill was responsible for assigning Frank Miller uh, year one. That might have been Len Wein um, before uh, Denny O'Neill took over. So, I, I don't know. It, it is kind of a mess. I'm not sure if one person is to blame or everybody's to blame or, or what? I think it's, I think there's definitely a lack of, of editorial cohesion. I mean, I, I think ultimately, and I hate to say this because I'm a huge fan of the band's writing. And I think later on he gets a strong hand on guiding the Batman books. Mm -hmm. But in this period, I think Denny O'Neill didn't, despite what he's telling us in the letters columns and from the den column, he didn't have a handle on where they were going with Batman. I think I think I think that's really apparent. And I think I don't think there's any way you can you can re, you can listen to this podcast, read these books again, and not see that. I mean, right. it's 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 there. I mean, it's it's unfortunate, but it's true. And uh, 
and you think about like around the same period. I mean, we're not quite there yet, but we're almost getting into the period of where Mike Carlin's editing the Superman books. And they're so cohesive across four, three, two, three, four books uh, with uh, the same with with a different creative team on each book. And it all feels like the same characters and uh, and and everybody's got different editorial styles, but it it can be done. It wasn't done here. (laughs) And I don't know if it's if it's all Denny O'Neill's fault for just not having the, the editorial chops at this point in his career. It could be from even further up the ranks. I mean, Superman, what Superman had going for it was a full reboot um, yeah. and that they were building this thing up and that they knew we were scrapping everything, we're starting over, we're taking what works and everything like that. And Batman's Batman did not get a reboot. They just sort of occasionally changed things and picked apart things and, and decided we're going to tweak these things and just – Maybe they didn't have like the long view of of where they were going. They didn't have the big overall vision, um, whether that was Denny O'Neill's responsibility or somebody further up the publishing chain, Paul Levitz, Jeanette Kahn, whoever. I, I don't know, but um, for whatever reasons, I think maybe just making the slow, occasional tweaks and changes, or, or you know, gradual. Maybe that wasn't the best thing. Maybe that's why it feels so kind of like broken and and. And I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway. anyway, next. Okay. Noah Tarnow wrote in to say, I'm basically in 100% agreement with you concerning year two. It's a complete mind F to consider this a coherent follow up to year one. The Reaper's design is pretty awesome anyway, and it makes zero sense for Batman to pull out Joe Chill's gun at the end. I also agree that this story would be a lot more successful if it weren't labeled Year Two and would be just another flashback Batman story, say a story arc in Legends of the Dark Knight. I also think, and I'm sure you'll get to this with the next issue, that it suffers greatly from the change in artists. I always think it makes comic books look cheap and disorganized when they can't keep a coherent creative team through the entirety of a supposedly important story arc. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, no matter what you think of the change from Davis to McFarlane, anytime they do that on a big on a big storyline, a big arc, it just disrupts it. It's almost like, you know, you start out uh, like a miniseries uh, with an actor playing this character and then that suddenly that actor's replaced. You know, it's it, like two episodes in or something. That, that, it's, it's almost the same thing for comics. Yeah. So. Yeah, I and again, I, I don't think this story had to be a flashback story. Like nothing, like really says it had. Like other than Bruce being drawn a little bit more youthful, I don't think anything about this says that it had to be so early in his career. This could have just been a contemporary, like you know, five or six years into his career. But we'll see. I guess just the idea that he would ever even think about using the gun. I guess mm-hmm. that kind of makes it because he hasn't quite, you know, firmed up his yeah. his code yet. I guess that's it. But but other than that, no, it doesn't. Yeah. And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense anyway, as we <laughs> most people seem to agree. <laughs> Brian Linton said, "When it comes to the gun, I'm solidly in the camp that believes Batman would never use one, and that he leapt too quickly to that solution in this issue." If Barr wanted to go in that direction, then he should have upped the stakes a bit more. Actually, that could have been a way of using Leslie in the story. Perhaps she stumbles upon the Reaper exacting his brand of justice, and she intervenes on behalf of his victim, which lands her in the ICU and gives Batman better motivation for wanting to take down the Reaper. Of course, you still run into the problem of Leslie not having yet earned that kind of relationship with Bruce. Then again, Robin's recent shooting might rob such, of an appro- such an approach of its effectiveness. 
Instead of going for the gun, I think it would have been more interesting to see Batman invent some of the classic bat gadgets to counter the Reaper. An origin story for those gadgets would have made a fun side story, in my opinion. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, with with Batman Year One, we got uh, the origin of a lot of tricks, but like you know, some of the more fun bat gadgets, um, even the origin of the Batmobile or something like that, the first time, like, but yeah. But Alan Davis won't draw the Batmobile. <laughs> For whatever reason. Hmm. Uh, yeah, but I like that. I like that idea of, and you know, over the Legend of the Dark Knight story arcs, we see different origins of like the Batmobile. I know there's one in the. Uh, is it uh, Doug Minch and Paul Galassi, mm. uh, the the Prey storyline and things. So, uh, yeah, it would have been kind of cool to see that. That would have been neat. Uh, Derek Crabb of the Fan Holes Podcast, the history of comics on film, and the owner of that fantastic Transformers jacket said, <laughs> I'll go to bat for Damien. I love him. I know a lot of you guys don't, and that's fine. But I get a kick out of him mixing with Supergirl, the Steph Brown Batgirl, the Titans, Ravager, Rose Wilson in particular, and John Kent. Personally, I think he worked a lot less when paired up with his own father rather than Dick Grayson. To me, that accounts for the whole Grant Morrison writing Damien better than Pete Tomasi writing Damien. Well, Derek, you're my pal, but we're going to have to disagree on this one. But but I I respect your opinion. And although I have seen that – I don't know if they're going to do it, what they're doing. But have you heard about this Batman-Deathstroke crossover where it's revealed that uh, Damien is not Batman's son but Slade Wilson's? No. Yes. that's Now, who knows if it's going to be true by the end of it. But uh, if it's true, I will be really happy. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder. Hmm. I bet you it's not going to be. Yeah. yeah. So (laughs) Uh, I I liked Damien when Grant Morrison was writing him, just because he he kind of had the right attitude and the right voice for him. Not that I want necessarily Damien in that in this continuity, but I think it at least made for some entertaining stories. Um, I will say shout out. I only recently, well, I mean, like within within the past couple of months since the last episode of what we did of this show, um, I started binging the history of of comics on film on on YouTube that Derek has been doing. And oh my God, everybody who said those things are great is absolutely correct. Um, That is such a fun rabbit hole to dive down and get lost in. Oh, I love it! I, he just put up a new one about Richie Rich that I haven't oh, watched nice. yet. I got I, I got to go watch that because I used to watch that cartoon. I, I love it. If you guys haven't watched those, it, it, you can. I mean, it's almost like watching a TV series. I mean, there's and some of them are longer than others. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, fall down that rabbit hole. You'll love it. You'll love it. And actually, it took me down another rabbit hole because I knew that there was a Spider Woman cartoon, but I'd never seen it. I'd never seen like any like. I don't even think I'd ever seen like a shot or like footage of it or whatever uh, until <laughs> until his episode on it, and then I was like, ah, I, like went to YouTube. I was like, oh, they've got the entire series of Spider Woman cartoons on this. I started watching those. <laughs> yeah, I remember that when I was on. Of course, I'm older than you, so yeah. but, you know. <laughs> Why is she fighting Godzilla? I don't. Know. <laughs> uh, Jimmy McGlinchey, who was recently heard on Midnight the Podcasting Hour, uh, agreed with our general premise that Year Two doesn't work thematically as a sequel to Year One. However, Jimmy said, while Miller's story is great, I prefer Batman to go up against his rogues gallery rather than go down the gritty route set up in Year One. Barr's aesthetic would be what I would lean more towards, the colorful and over-the-top characters for Batman to go up against, like the Reaper. 
Thinking on it, though, you could get to that stage from the start in year one. Year two, and I use this terminology of years here, even though with a pesky timeline, it would be a lot more condensed. Perhaps Act 1 and Act 2 would be better. Uh, so ye- Act 2 should be the rise of the supervillain. Then Year 3, or Act 3, would become something like the Long Halloween or the Dark Victory sagas, with the crime bosses making their last stand against Batman and the new supervillains, before meeting their defeat, and ending with the incorporation of Robin into the Batman mythos. That would be my headcanon for the early years of the Batman. Yeah, I used to, I, I had something very similar in mind for a couple of years, thinking sort of like the year one, um, as established by Miller and Mazzuchelli, and kind of looking at the long Halloween as like year three, and sort of having like the, the rise of all of the different villains sort of in, in the year two kind of format, that, that era. So completely ignoring this year two, so. Now with with headcanon, the orders of these things, I don't I don't even care. I don't even think about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and they they couldn't even like keep year three. Like Batman year three, like wasn't in continuity that long because they kept changing Dick's origin every time they retold it. So it's like it slightly altered it, you know. And it's like, well, you've got to have part of year three because Tim's in it, you know. Right. It's like, uh, it's a mess. Yeah. Well. Uh, Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks and Punch Like a Girl podcast here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network said, there are some good ideas in this that I think could have been made to work. Take the Reaper. I don't have an issue with the idea that there was a mass vigilante in Gotham before Batman, but I think if you're going to do that, it needs to be from around the turn of the century. Think of a Jack the Ripper style mystique around a guy who gutted criminals. That would fix a whole lot of issues around this character's existence prior to this story, at least for me. Second, not only do I take issue with the idea of Bruce having at some point considered using a gun, I actually think that there's a lot of meat to a story where he comes dangerously close on being on the other side of the gun that cut down his parents. But, I'll say again, I'm okay with Bruce considering a gun, but not Batman. It's a story, a dark turn, a near tragedy that can be part of his journey towards putting on the cow, but once he has made the choice, it needs to be among his founding principles. This is why it's okay that Bruce almost shoots Joe Chill and Batman Begins because he's not Batman yet. Oh, and I'll plug it again, Ryan. Your whole thing about Bruce not being able to have closure and still be Batman made me want to remind you to watch Gotham episode from season two, This Ball of Mud and Meanness. It's a fairly standalone episode, and hearing your feelings on this matter, I really want to hear your feelings on that episode. I'll even go so far as to say that if you do, I'll stop bringing up Gotham in the comments. I may still defend it if somebody else brings it up, though. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I I think what we need in order to get me to watch that episode, Nathaniel, is a situation just like getting me to watch Justice League. We need to tie tie me down like a clockwork orange and have my eyes propped open, either that or, or lots of booze. (laughs) <laughs> um, I want to I want to respond to a lot of these comments about year two, but we're not finished talking about year two, so I want to save some of this for the upcoming episodes that we're not just repeating the same things every time, every episode. So, uh, yeah, moving on. Ange said, "I love this series when it came out, and I picked it up off the shelf. Part of it was from the dynamic art and cover." But part of it was that this was a bit of a return to norm from year one. This wasn't grim and gritty and grounded. This was a bit more garish. I also love the fact that this book includes Leslie Tompkins and eventually Joe Chill. These were characters I grew up with. Chill being gunned down by his men when he reveals that he created Batman in a Silver Age story was headcanon for me. So I was glad Barr brought them back in his story too. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's from the the origin of the bat uh, origin of Batman. I think is that Batman number forty seven or forty eight. It's like from nineteen. I think it's from nineteen forty eight, mm. and it's it's been reprinted multiple times, and they even adapted parts of it on the Batman: The Brave and the Bold. Yep. yep. So yeah, that was a good one. When they had Kevin Conroy and uh, Mark Hamill voicing the Spectre and the Phantom Stranger. Oh yeah. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Ward Hill Terry wrote in to say, "I will be precise with my comp. <laughs> I'll be precise with my complaints. They are all on bar. The biggest is the damn gun in the story, and in the story behind the story, the gun that was used to murder the Waynes has become a fetish object. Barr can't let it go. Apparently, Davis couldn't let it go, and Bruce can't let it go. It's <laughs> it is bad enough that Joe Chill conveniently leaves his weapon behind. It is worse that young Bruce takes it and keeps it and builds a special spring-loaded storage space for it." In the portrait of his parents. <laughs> Furthermore, this weapon... It sounds, sounds crazy when you say it like that. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. Furthermore, this weapon, which presumably has not been used in nearly 20 years, is in perfect working condition. This story is nothing but a force set up to get to Batman with a gun. Not just a gun, but that gun. Batman gets beat up and barely escapes with his life. Okay, Batriders, what does he do next? Research his opponent, active 20 years ago, so they're auto. Ought to be lots of stuff at GCPD HQ and the archives at the Gotham Gazette. Restock his utility belt with smoke bombs and knockout gas. He had them last year. Patiently track his quarry and use his opponent's strengths against him. Nope. He goes for the fetish. Chris, you stated a couple of times that you don't want to knock these stories all the time. And you've both mentioned how sometimes the comics we used to love don't stand up to close scrutiny. The thing is, we, Ryan and Chris... And all who listen like these comics and characters and concepts. We really appreciate them. And when characters we like are made to do things that seem out of place or contradict the traits we found enduring, well, that feels like we've been cheated. Uh, yeah, you bring, <laughs> again, when you put it that way, <laughs> you have some good points. I mean, you have some uh, very valid points there, uh, Ward, I, I think. And I, and I actually, the way you put them, I'm kind of like, yeah, I can see that. Uh I just I, – I know – I always want to be clear that we don't come to these comics to bash them because there are – I don't think there's a whole lot of podcasts like that. And uh, But I, I don't want to ever come from a place of, oh, let's just tear this crappy comic book a new hole. You know, I, I don't I don't ever want to come from that place. We – you know, I, I think – I'm speaking for Ryan, but I think we both try to find the good in these books. We wouldn't cover them if we didn't, you know, l- love the characters – and in general, like the run we're we're talking about. So uh, you know, maybe we overstate it, but I, in case we ever get like a, somebody new listens, I don't want them thinking, oh, this is what they always do. You know. So if right. this is your first episode, uh, and you, and we'll really rip this comic a new one, uh, go back and listen to us gush about Batman Year One. So. <laughs> <laughs> go back and listen to episode one a couple of times. That was fun. That was just. Oh yeah, that was, was good. Those were good times, but. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, we're we're in a run here where we've got um, we've got some problematic issues on both sides. Uh, so we we might do something in the future to to expedite that and, and zip through these a little bit quicker. But before before addressing that, uh, our last comment that came from the website uh, was by Edwin Latore, who said, "On a controversial note, I am an older fan and I do like Damien." Yes, he's a little jerk, but I want him to be a jerk. It's a fun dynamic change, especially once you apply the caveat that all of his bravado is nothing more than a kid pretending to be tough. 
This kid is never honest about his feelings, but he's kind of a terrible liar about it when you know him. It's why Dick, John, Jason, Bruce, and especially Alfred all see through him. It's seeing his earnest desire to do good and those rare moments of vulnerability where he's just a kid with people like Maya Ducard that makes it all worthwhile. I don't know who Maya Ducard is. These are all characters from like more recent... Is she's um, Henry Descartes' maybe daughter or something? I don't yeah, know. I'm assuming, yeah. I also like that he brings a bit of friction to the family dynamic as opposed to an ascended fanboy like Tim, which probably isn't helped by, this is going to be even more controversial, I don't like Tim Drake. <gasps> Gasp, you shall. He's not interesting to me. Dick is the ray of sunshine, Jason is the son Bruce loved the most and the whole, and who he feels he failed. Barbara is the one who made herself. Steph is another ray of sunshine, but she's also willing to rebel if she needs to. Damien is the brat. Tim is... Tim's just sort of there. Maybe I'm just conditioned to more easily accept a character like Damien because I have a background with anime and that sort of loving but dishonest about it character type that he represents in my head. It also helps that he's grumpy when I read Super Sons and I get to enjoy him and John being the worst best friends ever. Or is that the best worst friends ever? Either way, their dynamic is delightful. And now to my last point. This one might be the most crazy. I think Bruce Wayne's secret identity might be the worst kept secret in Gotham City. I'm pretty sure every cop, escort, model, etc. already knows that Bruce Wayne and Batman are the same guy. And they're just not saying anything. Now I'm sure this starts and ends just my own little fanon. But I like that word. Um, But I tend to think Bruce isn't as good at maintaining his secret as he likes to think he is, and everyone else is too invested in him doing what he needs to do to to stop him. After all, how many times have we seen a variation on Jim Gordon has known for years before we accept that Batman's not as good at keeping his secrets as writers claim? Anyway, that's enough sacrilege for one post. I enjoy the heck out of the show. Keep up the good work. (laughs) <laughs> wow there's a lot to unpack there uh-huh. like likes damien doesn't like tim thinks everybody knows bruce wayne batman's secret i and i never got that and i mean that's okay if 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 uh edwin does but i never got that that bruce loved jason more uh than any of the other robins i you know i don't i don't really see that i'd i'd say i'd say he's probably closest to dick if if any of them you know uh but uh, just if not for just the history of the the two, but yeah, you know it's uh, I, I do like the 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 John Kent Damien dynamic. That's that's one place I like. I think my my number one problem with Damien is that they went so far with him early on being like a little killer, and I just can't accept these characters like just overlooking that, you know. And it's like, oh sure, you know, let's just you know. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe if I like really just read everything from start to finish i'd think different but uh, you know it, it's i just can't get i couldn't get past that with him to fully accept him because of the way he came in it just it, and that's my hang up but uh that that's where i'm at with him so i don't know as far as bruce uh everybody knowing that bruce is batman it reminds me of when the fantastic cast was covering uh, the strange tale stories with the human torch uh the solo stories where for whatever reason in that series in the town they lived in, Johnny Storm either had a secret identity or he thought his identity as a human torch was secret. Mm. And and they kind of later said that everybody was just kind of playing along with him. So <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> – it's what it reminds me of. <laughs> 
Uh. I'm still hung up on Evans like his his the roles and for all of like the surrogate kids for Batman and like the, those relationships. I'm not sure I buy all of those. I think Tim is the most grounded of them. I mean, which is why I didn't like I didn't like Tim's. I mean, it was bad enough that his mom was killed. Mm. I didn't like Identity Crisis. You know, taking a dump in in Tim's history and killing his dad. Uh, because that left Tim, that made Tim the Robin. He wanted to be Robin. Yeah. Uh, that was the character he wanted to be. He didn't want to grow up to be Batman. He didn't want to be Nightwing. He wanted to be Robin. Mm-hmm. And I, as much as I love Dick Grayson, and he's my personal favorite Robin, I think because of that, I think, and I think they did a pretty good job of selling that, is that Tim was the best Robin because he, that was his entire reason for being is he wanted to be Robin. Mm-hmm. You know that that's my take on Tim. Like, I always feel like Tim was the most self-sufficient, the most autonomous, the most kind of like he he was the kid who never needed his parents' help with his homework. He was, right. just, I mean, he was already brilliant. He he was like not saying he's smarter than Bruce, but like he just he got it. He didn't need that extra hand. Like that was what he brought to the table was this this intelligence. Um, I've often thought that, like, when Tim eventually grew up and grew out of the Robin mold, he wouldn't become, he wouldn't become a Batman type. He would be more of a, more of just a detective type. He would be more of a, a Sherlockian or, or like Ralph Dibney without the, without the stretching powers. Um, yeah. I think, I think Dick Grayson had the acrobatics and the physical skills but Tim Drake had the 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 smart the intelligence and the detective skills and i think that's what he would have grown up to be is just he he might have become the world's greatest detective um but wouldn't have had to do it with the flash of the costume right i i think i agree that you know i think i've heard chuck dixon and other writers say that tim would just retire he wouldn't he wouldn't become you know a nightwing type he would he would probably still be like you said he'd be a detective or maybe he could even be more the oracle type yeah. you know yeah because he was a uh, you know computer savvy and everything too yeah. uh but I, I i and i think that's one reason why tim is it, he's kind of a lost character this with damien coming in and then the new 52 they just you know with all the red robin and all that stuff it's just it's it's a real shame what they because he was such a great character at the time of you know in the '90s and the the Chuck Dixon runs just fantastic. Uh, it's some of the best stuff that that was DC was publishing at that period or any comics any superhero comics at that period in my opinion. Right. And, and uh, yeah, it's it's a shame that he's gotten lost in the shuffle of all, all these changes over the years. Mm-hmm. All right, before we go, we got an email which was actually sent back in January. Uh, from our old pal Javi the Golden Boy. And Javi writes, Hi all, I'm finding more and more time to go back and listen to my golden oldies. Now that I've reached that grace period between the chaos of applying to college and, you know, actually going to college. Nightcast, of course, was at the top of my list. First of all, congratulations on going to college. Yes. Um, I've been catching up, and I have to say your podcast is an incredibly refreshing taste of sincerity in the midst of the cynicism current affairs has wrought. That, and you're talking about Batman for hours on end, which is great, too. You've covered some of my favorite stories from the valleys of Batman Year 2 and the mountains of Batman Year 1, both of which are beautiful landscapes, with one, bit, with one just a bit more beautiful than the other. By the way, Selina is totally a prostitute in Year 1, and that is totally okay. People shouldn't be condemned or <laughs> to judgment because of their profession. Uh, I don't want to go down this road again. <laughs> 
<laughs> Please no. Yeah, he, Javi is basically defending her uh, position as a prostitute. I don't even want to have that argument or that discussion again. Um, he continues, that parenthetical comment actually brings me to my main point. You, my esteemed podcasters, are reaching the point in Batman's history where he becomes his worst self. A privileged white guy trying to police a, differ- a diverse community through fear and intimidation. Dehumanizing those he is supposed to protect to the extent that he regularly calls them scumbags. Or, you know, being a white cop with insufficient training and education. Soon, Alan Grant will have him kick teenagers and attack black men unprovoked. This actually happens. I'm not being hyperbolic. Now, I know neither of you was shouting Make America Great Again into your microphones during the 2016 election, so I'm pretty sure you're not looking forward to it either, but I still wanted to point out my concerns. I'm a huge fan of the podcast, and I wish you guys the best in both your professional and personal lives. BT dubs, because I know you guys love phonetic spelling. Congratulations, Ryan, on the new addition to your own Bat family. Well, thank you very much for the, that. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I, I mean, this is... <laughs> this whole... The whole concept for Batman Nightcast was I, I, I thought about... A part of it was nostalgia because this is the Batman that I grew up reading that I got into, but I really wanted to look at this process of Batman going from who he was around the crisis to the Batman of now, which is more of a an unlikable character, frankly. Like I, I like I don't know why somebody would like the Batman of today and like these issues. And I kind of wanted to see this process of him getting more dark, more violent more paranoid, more judgmental, uh, more stern, and and this, and it will be an interesting uh, it will be an interesting journey that we go through, and we might reach the point where it stops being fun. Um, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see how far we get into the future. Um, this issue, this yeah. episode. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Just, right. just, just kidding. Just kidding, folks. Just I, kidding. <laughs> need to at least get to one Norm Brayfogle issue, damn it. Well, now he's saying, though, that Alan Grant's got him. I, I don't remember that, but I'll, I'll take your word for it until we get there, and we'll, we'll examine what... He, he uh, becomes pretty harsh during the, the Grant and Brayfogle era. I do remember. I don't... Oh, well, yeah, I know he does that, but yeah, I mean, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah. We, we shall see. We might get to some... I'm I'm sure we will we will find some panels and some issues that make the uh, skin crawl. We will we'll find out when we get there. But um, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that is our feedback for the, this episode. Thank you once again for everybody who wrote in. Uh, thank you very much, everybody who you know follows the show and and promotes it on social media. We will do our best to follow this episode up in a more timely manner. Um, I am hoping, as my schedule lays out, that I will I will have time to do this show. So, next episode, Chris, what do we got next time? Next time, we've got the second part of Batman Year Two in the debut of Todd McFarlane as the artist. Woo! <laughs> so exciting that is. That, that's definitely <laughs> the shot in the arm that this era needs. <laughs> well, it gives us lots to talk about. That's for yeah. sure. Uh, and then, as I uh, as I mentioned already, the episode after that, we're going to take a break to cover Batman Annual Number Eleven, which has two stories. One is a Clayface story written by Alan Moore. The other one is a Penguin story, which does feature Norm Brayfogle's first published pencils on Batman. So Woo-hoo. those will be cool to look forward to in the future. So 
Oh, did I bring up? I forgot to bring up. I found the DC Multiverse action figure of the Reaper. Yeah, you did. It's very cool. It looks nice on my shelf with my DC Universe classics, which that's you know pretty much an extension of that line. <laughs> Uh, so it looks really cool up there. You know, he's got the sides, he's got the the armor. It's a really nice figure. And sadly, I found it at Toys R Us, which will probably be closed in a few months. So, uh, but I did found something cool and neat at Toys R Us on my so far the last trip I had there. So that was neat. I went to a Toys R Us last week and just asked one of the guys like if he knows when they'll be closing. He said they're still getting stock from their warehouse regularly. He thinks probably by the end of summer, like maybe the end of July, they'll be closed. But I think there's still yeah. a couple of months if people want to want to take the trip. Um, yeah. Can we look forward to a future episode of those wonderful toys dedicated to that Reaper figure? I think we might. That'd be cool. cool. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, and until uh, next time, folks. Bye. Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can find me, Chris, on Twitter at supermatespod or email me at supermatespodcast.gmail.com. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. Just like what I said